you're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. Make room in your hearts for us. We have wronged no one. We have corrupted no one. We have taken advantage of no one. I do not say this to condemn you, for I said before that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. I am acting with great boldness toward you. I have great pride in you. I am filled with comfort. In all our affliction, I am overflowing with joy. For even when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus, and not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted by you, as he told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced still more. For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it, for I see that that letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting, for you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point you have proved yourselves innocent in this matter. So although I wrote to you, it was not for the sake of the one who did the wrong, nor for the sake of the one who suffered the wrong, but in order that your earnestness for us might be revealed to you in the sight of God. Therefore, we are comforted. And besides our own comfort, we rejoiced still more at the joy of Titus, because his spirit has been refreshed by you all. For whatever boasts I made to him about you, I was not put to shame. But just as everything we said to you was true, so also our boasting before Titus has proved true. And his affection for you is even greater, as he remembers the obedience of you all, how you received him with fear and trembling. I rejoice, because I have complete confidence in you. All right, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Great to be with you. Happy winter. Who's excited that winter's here? Three people, awesome. Great to be with you guys. Uh, if you are new or visiting, my name is Guy. Joy and privilege, as always, to serve uh, as the pastor of City on a Hill. Big shout out to those who are joining us online. Uh, wonderful to be with you after what has been a really encouraging uh, week and a half uh, with the life of City on a Hill. Off the back of the conference, so encouraged uh, as the pastor of this church just to hear uh, testimonies of people, uh, prayers being answered, uh, and a lot of people taking big steps forward uh, in their faith with Jesus. So I just want to say again, I said at the evening service last week, a big thanks to everyone who was there. Thanks to the team and a big thanks to Jess Bowie who led uh, our conference team in bringing together a great time. Thank you, Jess. I uh, appreciate your service there. Uh, I had the opportunity this week uh, to spend some extended time uh, with my wife, Vanessa, and kids and Matt and Lauren and their kids. We wanted to give them an Australian kind of experience. Uh, and so I hired a 12-seater van and and drove the Chandlers to the Australia Zoo, uh, where they got to feed some kangaroos and hold a koala and do all those great things. I also got to spend some time uh, with Zach and uh, uh, Zach Sargent, who heads up uh, City on a Hill uh, Brisbane, as well as Sam Lowe, who heads up City on a Hill Gold Coast, uh, which is really a great encouragement uh, to us all about the goodness of God and the unity that we share as a body of Christ. Uh, today, we are continuing our series, Jars of Clay. We're going to be in 2 Corinthians chapter 7. And so if you've got a Bible, why don't you go and grab that and come with me now. All right, so 
Uh, to set the stage for uh, today's text, I want to share a story about another church, actually, a church from Georgia. Uh, The church, so this church uh, opened its doors. It's a small town. It opened its doors, get this right, early 1900, small town, about 5,000 people, and they named the church Centerville Presbyterian Church. And things for this new church at Centerville Presbyterian Church uh, were going really well. There was solid teaching, warm fellowship, and people were enjoying their Sunday service, and they swelled to like 100, 150 people, and everything was going great. But then things got complicated. Uh, A dispute arose among the body about when the offering should take place in the service. So by show of hands, who thinks the offering, the church offering, where you hand around it, should happen before the sermon? Show of hands. No hands. Okay, who thinks it's best after the sermon? A lot more hands. Who thinks we should never hand it around at all? Right? So this dispute broke out in the church. Uh, No one could decide on what was right. Uh, And so Centerville Presbyterian Church uh, ended up splitting. And those who couldn't agree left. And they started a new church, which they called Centerville Reformed Presbyterian Church. Four years later, they got stuck on another issue, this time about whether you could have flowers in the church sanctuary or whether they had to be outside. Who thinks uh, flowers on the inside is okay? <laughs> Who thinks flowers have got to go? Right? One hand. All right. Uh, this issue couldn't be resolved, so once again, there was a church split, so members of Centerville Reformed Presbyterian Church started a new church, which they called Trinity Reformed Presbyterian Church of Centerville. And then did you know over the next 15 years, the small town witnessed seven more splits. By 1975, it set a new record with 48 church splits. The last split was over over whether it was okay to send an email on a Sunday. Anyone check their Facebook today? All right, you're out. The church renamed to the catchy title... The Presbyterian, Totally Reformed, Covenantal, Westminsterian, Sabbatarian, Regulative, Credo, Communionist, Amillennial, Presuppositional Church of Centerville, or PTRCWSRCCAPCC for short. How good is that? Praise the Lord for that. <laughs> now, of course, this hilarious and fictional story. Ah, oh, come on. <laughs> Uh, But of course, it does have a hint of truth to it, doesn't it? Uh, If you've been part of a church longer than, let's say, I don't know, three minutes, uh, you will know that for all our talk of unity, uh, Christians can very easily get swept up in debate and division. And tragically, you know this, that these uh, these, uh, splints and uh, segregations not only hinder our witness in the world, but actually rob us all of the unity, the love, the deep friendship that we're meant to know and enjoy. And listen, in many ways, this unity sets the tone and temperature for this text that we're going to be in today. When Paul is penning this letter, in particular this chapter, he is dealing with a series of complex issues that are causing division and divide in the early church. And it's causing heartache for him. It's causing grief in the church. And so Paul is eager to express his hurt over this division and take action. Put simply, he wants to see unity. Now just pause for a moment and consider how relevant this text is for you and me today. By show of hands, who in this room, and we can be honest with one another, who in this room has experienced a a, a fracturing of a relationship in their life? Right? It could be a family member. Keep those hands. It could be a family member. could be a friend. could be someone in a gospel community, church. Right now, have a look around, and you will see that this is a text that touches us all. We all want deep friendship in our life. We all want a church that's together. We all want to sing as one. And yet we also know how hard that unity can be to build and how easily it can be lost. So how do we deal with these situations? 
How do we deal with the realities of life and the tensions that we experience? What do you do when you face a fractured relationship? What is the Christian response? Well, today, as we unpack uh, this chapter, and it's a very practical text full of wisdom for us, I want us to see four principles, four principles that uh, will highlight uh, Paul's experience and his leadership, but also be tremendously helpful and practical for us who are seeking reconciliation today. So here's the first, we can bring that up. Uh, Reconciliation must be grounded on commitment. Reconciliation must be grounded on commitment. So beginning in verse 2, check this out. Paul says to the church in Corinth, Make room in your hearts for us. We have wronged no one, we have corrupted no one, and we have taken advantage of no one. I do not say this to condemn you, for I said before that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. Now, why did Paul have a falling out with the church in Corinth. To be perfectly honest, I don't know, right? There's lots of different reasons, lots of different speculations, and we could geek out on all of that. But what we know is that when Paul first planted the church, which you can actually read about in Acts 18, everything was rosy, everything was fine. And yet by the time he writes his first letter, known as 1 Corinthians, you can see that all of a sudden this early church is splintering and there's issues and there's questions and there's uh, division and debate and conjecture about leadership and who's in charge. All of this stuff has started bubbling to the surface. And this is kind of like overflowing with intensity by the time he writes this letter. And yet what is really, really worth noting in your Bible is that regardless of what this fight is all about, what is admirable about Paul is that he doesn't give up on them. He doesn't give up on the church. He doesn't give up on the relationship, right? It's very clear. You can't miss it. The relationship is strained, but Paul won't walk away from that. He won't turn his back on the church. He's committed to them. So if you you cast your eyes to verse 2, you'll see this actually beautiful language that he uses about making a way in their hearts for him. Would you make a way in your hearts for me, he is saying. Interestingly, in in, in the previous chapter, he says, would you widen your heart? Now he goes even deeper and says, would you make a way in your heart for me? Right? There's tension, there's distance. And and in a step of vulnerability, you always need that in a relationship, someone who can express this desire. Would you make a way in your heart for me? And for Paul, this this request of restoration, this desire to be kind of, that the walls would come down and you'd you'd make a way for me, it, it, it comes with this solid declaration of commitment. Right? And you're going to get into the details of the text in a moment about where he's been hurt and who's right and all of this kind of stuff is going to come. But right out of the gate, notice Paul starts with a very clear declaration of his commitment to the church. You see that in verse 3? He says, what does he say? Uh, it is not your love. No, that's not that one. Verse 3, if we can bring that up. Make room in your hearts for us. Oh, where am I? To die. Where is the to die together? What verse is that? Second half. Oh, yes, yes, right at the bottom. Thank you very much, right? For I said before that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. To die together and to live together. So, yes, there's been misunderstandings. Yes, there is tension in the air. But Paul wants to know that their bond is secure. Their bond is secure and he is committed to them. And and I find this commitment to be tremendously important, particularly when you're navigating uh, uh, fracturing in a relationship. So very important that you express your commitment to the other person early, right? We all know that in a relationship, the question is not if you fight, but when you fight and how you fight. And if you try and argue with one foot out the door, with one hand on the ejector seat, It's going to be incredibly hard to get honest, to be vulnerable, and to work through the difficult things you will need to work through to find that resolution, right? I've been married uh, just over 20 years uh, to my beautiful wife, Vanessa. Um, We've had our fights, would you believe it? 
right? We've had moments of pulling out our hair and all of that. And I remember this one particular moment where I'd been a jerk. I'd clearly done the wrong thing. She was hurt. It was all on me. And yet, right in the beginning, right at the, the middle of the mess with the intensity and everything's out of she grabs my hand. She says, I'm not going anywhere. I'm committed to you. I'm not going anywhere. I'm committed to you. And that, oh, you know what that did to my heart? It melted it. <laughs> right? She wasn't saying I wasn't a jerk. <laughs> she, she, she was hurt. She wasn't sugarcoating that reality. But she knew that we had a covenant that meant we could work through this. Right? That's why marriage, you know, if you're married, is so important. It's this covenant that enables you to work through it. I love this quote by Bonhoeffer. He says, It is not your love that sustains the marriage, but from now on the marriage that sustains your love. Right? So, so, so hear the wisdom in that. If you want a deep relationship... If you want a deep friendship, if you want a deep church that can endure difficult times, get through those hard times and get to a new place of maturity, of joy, of love, you can't just be led by your feelings. You have to be led by your commitments, led by your commitments. I know, listen, I've been pastoring now for 15 years. I know of a number of pastors who got into difficult situations in their church, are falling out with another staff member, are falling out with some people in the church. People started complaining. And what did they do? They said, hey, you know what? Too hard. I walk away and start a new ministry. Right? Just give up. I'm not going to work through that. That's challenging. Cries too much. I'm just going to walk away and start a new ministry somewhere else. Pastors do that. Christians do that as well. Right? They go to a church looking to get their needs met, and when something doesn't go the way they like, or they rub up against someone in their gospel community, or they don't like a particular song that's sung one week, or what, and what do they do? They close the door and just move on to something different. Right? And, and, and the, the sadness in all of that is that not only are you compromising the unity, but you're robbing yourself of the maturity that comes when you can work with someone and go through those difficult patches to understand, build empathy, and grow together. Right? Paul, he's different. Right? He, he, he's different. His feelings are hurt here. This is hard for him, but he doesn't give up on this church. Keep in mind, he's planted lots of churches, a lot of different churches he could occupy himself with. But he's not given up on this church in Corinth. He, he loves the church, and he knows that his relationship is going to be uh, stronger for that commitment. So, so already as we're thinking about this, thinking about relationships in your life now, ask yourself, am I committed to that person? Is there commitment in your life? That's the first thing. Second, reconciliation must be grounded on truth. You want a strong relationship? You've got to be committed it also has to be governed and grounded on truth. So there's a really interesting text, verse 2. It sort of hit me in the face when I first read it. <laughs> Check it out. Paul says, we, that's probably Paul, Timothy, right? We have wronged no one. We have corrupted no one. We have taken advantage of no one. Now, why does this kind of hit me in the face at first? Well, at first, it sounds like he's being very defensive, Right? Sounds like he's taking no responsibility. Sounds, sounds like he's just backing out and putting all the... Sounds like he's being defensive, right? Unless, of course, Paul hasn't done anything wrong in this particular matter. In which case, it's actually very important that he speaks up and declares that. So, Paul, in this verse, appears to be confronting... Note this, a claim that he was exploiting the church for his own back pocket. In fact, the three verbs that are used here in this text, uh, in verse 2, were commonly used to describe wrongful financial activities. All of which Paul is wanting to refute. Right? He's not saying here that he's perfect. He's not saying that he's without sin. He's not claiming to be a perfect leader or anything like that, but clearly these claims regarding his use of the church finances are without foundation, right? And so what is the point here? 
The point is that in any area of disagreement in your relationships, you must affirm your commitment to the other, but you must also shed light and speak the truth, right? You must shed light and you must speak the truth. I, uh, I remember a fun disagreement Vanessa and I had uh, some years ago. Uh, I'd gone out um, to a, like a wine bar in, in Surrey Hills to catch up with a new friend, a new friend that I'd met in London. Uh, they had heard my preaching and were eager to catch up, and they were from Australia, and they wanted to catch up to find out more and hear about the church. And so I met up uh, at this wine bar and, uh, in, in Surrey Hills. We had a great time. And I come home telling Vanessa how great it was. Uh, she, you know, she asks about it. I say, well, I first met uh, you know, Kathy Priest in London, and she'd been listening to my podcast. She was keen to catch up. And so we met at this uh, wine bar in Surrey Hills. It was candlelit. The wine was great. The conversation was great. And the more I kept talking about this, uh, this, this catch-up uh, with Kathy Priest, um, Ness is looking frustrated. And she's like, you can just tell she's uncomfortable before me. And I'm like, what's going on here? And like, how come you're upset? And she says, Guy, I don't like that you're at a candlelit wine bar with a woman you met in London called Kathy Priest. To which I say, Kathy Priest? No, no. I said, I met up with a Catholic priest. Not a woman named Kathy Priest, actually a dude who was a Catholic priest. He'd heard my sermons and wanted to know more about our church. And so we caught up. We had a great time. Uh, the moment that was said, obviously the tension in the room whew, dissolves. Why? Because sometimes in relationships, listen, issues are not malicious, but simply a matter of misunderstanding. Misunderstanding. Now, of course, that's a funny example, easily resolved. Right? But isn't it true that sometimes in an argument, facts can easily be misunderstood and even motives misrepresentative, uh, misrepresented, right? Uh, by show of hands, how many of you have been in a situation, a situation where someone read a motive into your action that wasn't there? Right? Look around. It happens all the time. Uh, sometimes people take information, they piece it together, they build it the way they want to, but it actually is not true. Right? Now, this can be tricky because our hearts can be deceived, and sometimes we see one thing, and that's why having a third party, a good friend, a good counselor, a gospel, right, to help speak into that can be really, really important. But, but the principle here is that as Christians, both parties, all parties, need to seek truth. Right? It, it, it's not appropriate just to, what a lot of Christians do is just assume that they did the wrong thing and just walk on and just ignore that. No, we are people who are moved by the truth. We want to gain truth. We want to walk in the light. So that's the second point. Third, really, really important, reconciliation must be inspired by God's comfort. Verse 5, Paul says, For even when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we are afflicted at every turn, Fighting without and fear within. The fighting without is most likely a reference to the various kinds of persecution that the Apostle Paul had on his missionary journeys. Wherever he went, he was often followed by a mob of people who were trying to get him and beat him up and, and throw him in prison. But notice that Paul not only experienced fighting without, but also he experienced fears within, right? Fighting without fears within. What would those fears have been? It could have been fears over his next attack. It could have been fears about going to that next prison. But do you remember what Paul says in chapter 11? It's that passage, you know that passage where he says, I face danger here and danger there and danger, right? He lists all of these ways in which he fights these opponents. But then after listing it all, Paul says this, and apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Right? So after listing all of the various dangers and being shipwrecked and being persecuted and beaten, he says, and apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Um, do you hear his heart here? Uh, this is a man who is kept up at night 
with anxiety and concern and worry for the church. And I know that's it's not something you hear a lot of pastors uh, talk about. Um, but in my experience, my own journey, but also ministering alongside other pastors, it's very, very common to hear and talk with pastors who have anxiety and concern, who are kept up at night because of men and women within their church. Um, Sometimes it can be anxiety because someone you care about has fallen in sin. You know, you get that call to hear that someone has, you know, perhaps cheated on their, their, their spouse and they're, they're, you know, they're running fully into the world and you can see the damage and the heartache in that, right? That creates an anxiety within you as you think about the implications of that broken relationship. Sometimes it can be anxiety over sickness and disease. You get that call that this healthy family and you know, the mum has now been diagnosed with cancer or the, the child has now been, and you feel that. Right? Pastors love people and so they feel the pain in that. Sometimes it can just be about our own insecurities, my own fears and my own insecurities, where you worry about, oh, what did they think about that? Was that sermon okay? I think I might have been a bit short with that person. I didn't quite land that conversation so well. Was I present there? I feel like... Right? You, you, you can think these things about other people even when those things are not even there. And, and what I love about Paul is he can own his anxiety, which is so common to people today. He can own his anxiety and he can express it. Right? It, it was uncomfortable for Paul to be accused of things. It was unsettling for Paul to see division and fighting in the church. It was heartbreaking for him to see people he loved and cared for kind of walk away and, and leave him. Um, why? Because the pain of separation hurts. The anxiety and of, of complex and broken relationships, it really runs deep. You know that saying, um, sticks and stones may break my bones, but... Yeah, words will never hurt me. It, not true, right? It's cute. It sounds cute because it rhymes, right? But it's, it's, it's not actually true. And for, you know, for anyone who's ever been bullied in the schoolyard or the workplace, uh, anyone who's um, been cut down uh, by a good friend that they cared about, anyone here today who's ever had a, a mother or father, you know, land that word of disappointment against you, Right? It's like tar, it, it, it sticks to you. Right? Bones heal, but we know hearts break. Um, very hard to, to work on that, and that's why it's, it's helpful to know restoration is really hard work. You know, you broke an arm, you've got to kind of wrap it up and you move on forward, but restoration relationships, it, it, it takes a lot of work. I've passed it now for 15 years, and I've sat in lots of restoration meetings. Where I've been there to help a, you know, you know, two friends or a husband and a wife, some case pastors. And and to kind of restore requires deep, honest work, going to the depths of the hurt. And I tell you, very few people want to go to that place, which is why very few people uh, see the reconciliation that the Bible calls them to embrace. Sometimes on the surface it can be really small. Seemingly, you know, just a word here, a comment there, but actually it's a heart issue. It's a heart issue. Again, this is what makes Paul different. This is what makes the Christian different. We've got to own the hurt and enter in. And the question then is, how do you do that? Right? If you're really hurting, and maybe you are today because of a relationship with someone, you know, in your, you know, the Bible calls you to reconciliation, forgiveness. We, we sing about these things, but, but it hurts. So, so, so how do you deal with that? Uh, look to verse 6. So very important. Paul says, you know, we're afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fears within, but God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus, and not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he is comforted by you. And he told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoice still more. 
You might recall at the very beginning, in the opening week of this series, Paul was rejoicing in the comfort of God. Right? The God of all comfort we talked about. And here you can hear why that comfort was so very important. Amidst all of his anxiety for the church, amidst his fears and grief and the separation and the misunderstandings, he had experienced the arms of his heavenly father and a love that sustained and strengthened him through it all. And let me say that is the only way I know for any of us to pursue reconciliation with one another, to find the strength, the vulnerability, the honesty to express your own pain. The only way I know to kind of bring down those walls and extend a hand of forgiveness to someone who hurts you is in the comfort of our God. If you look to find your comfort in the world, it will only get you so far. Because the wisdom of the world is not enough for you. Now, that's not to say that there isn't a place in our life for the comfort of friends, a great counselor, or a good book. But at the center of all of those things is our ultimate need for God. You need in your life God-centered friends. You need in your life God-centered counselors. You need in your life God-centered words. You need God's word to comfort you, to hold you, to get you through. Um, Let me say, if you've been hurt, and really there's no if in that, (laughs) you've been hurt, Uh, isn't it tempting to respond out of the flesh in those moments? Isn't it tempting to compound the hurt with your own anger and your own hurt against them? That sharp email you send straight away out of anger. That sharp word that you give. And what happens? You just spiral each other down into more and more chaos and mess. What you need to do in the moment of hurt, in the moment of affliction, when that wound is there, is to go to your heavenly Father for his comfort. I love the moment of, beautiful moment, Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. I mean, here he is, feeling the anxiety of all that has gone before him, all that is before him, feeling the concern and the the frustration of his own betrayal. Let's not forget one of his best mates. He had crowds of people, but he only had a 12. One of his best mates had knifed him in the back. So he's got betrayal behind him, the cross before him. You can almost see him. There'd be that temptation, wouldn't there, to kind of raise your fists in anger and I'll get them, I'll bring down the thunder, right? But what does he do? He goes to his Father in heaven to comfort him. And it's the comfort of the Father that enables Jesus to arise from the Garden of Gethsemane and do that ultimate work of reconciliation. It's the comfort of his and our Heavenly Father which enables him from the cross to say to his oppressors, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Has someone broken your heart? Has someone left some scarring words? The very first thing and continual thing is to pray, to come to your Heavenly Father, to find the strength, the support, the wisdom that you need in Him. I love this text. Paul says, do not be anxious about anything. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And note these words. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, what's it going to do? It's going to guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. That's the only comfort I know. (laughs) To deal with pain of betrayal. The only comfort I can offer you today that will strengthen you and find what you need. 
to take that first step is the comfort of God. This leads to a fourth and final point. We've seen that reconciliation must be granted in commitment, in truth. It must be inspired by God's comfort. Finally, reconciliation rests on godly repentance and gospel encouragement. Verse 8, Paul says, For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it, (laughs) for I see that the letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into, what's that word? Repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. Uh, So if you're reading through that text, you'll know that Paul is referring to a letter here that he had sent to the church in Corinth. Um, We have the first letter, 1 Corinthians, but we actually don't have the second letter. And so we don't know the specifics of what he said in this letter that he's referring to here. However, um, you can kind of piece it together and ascertain from other parts of his writing that some people in the church had been attacking Paul, discrediting him. And what hurt Paul was both the attack, the discrediting, but also the lack of support from the church in Corinth. Right? Not only did they not deal with the person or people who were causing the harm, but they didn't come to his defense. They didn't come to his support. They didn't come to his side. And Paul Well, it hurt Paul, right? Again, this is so relatable. We've all had moments where you expect that someone's going to be there to help you and they don't. And that compounds the pain. That compounds the pain and and it hurts Paul. Uh, He'd done so much for the community. He'd planted the church. He'd led the church and they didn't defend him or support him. And so what does Paul do? He writes a sharp letter in which he expresses his sadness to the church, right? I was hurt that you didn't support me. I was saddened that you didn't come to my aid. And as you can read in this text, Paul did feel some regret over this letter, right? He knew that that in writing this letter, it had caused the Corinthians some pain. They were hurt by his words, But at the same time, Paul recognizes that his words, which we might refer to as tough love, was a means of grace that God used to work towards genuine repentance and reconciliation. Right? So his words of tough love led to an opportunity to bring down those walls and and work towards repentance and reconciliation. And I think that idea of tough love is worth dwelling on. Uh, it's, it's a hard road to walk uh, because most of us, when it comes to relationship, uh, relationships, are conflict adverse. Um, you know, it's clear that some people explode when they're cross, like everything triggers them and they fire up in rage and war. That's a few people, but most people are conflict adverse. They just go silent. Um, they respond to difficulty through avoidance. Um, They go silent in the marriage. They check out of the friendship group. They move on to another church. Uh, They might even pretend like it's okay. When it's not okay, they just take the pain and hurt and just kind of push it down further. And this is where you need to know the difference between peacekeeping and peacemaking. Um, Some of you grew up in homes where where you were told to keep the peace. So, you know, there was someone who was angry and upset or someone did the wrong thing and instead of kind of speaking up against that trying to change the situation you were told to keep the peace which means just be quiet keep your head down and ignore this situation but Christians aren't called to um, peacekeeping you are called to peace making keeping the peace is usually code for stay quiet peace making is, you where, is where you bring things to the light and work towards the resolution. You enter into the difficulty. You speak truth about how you're feeling and what is wrong in this situation. 
You're honest with one another. You face it square on. And is that easy? No. As I've said, Christians find this difficult. Most of us are conflict adverse. We, we don't want to do what is uncomfortable. Uh, we, we are fearful of what people might think of us. Uh, we don't often have the emotional um, awareness uh, to navigate that, and we just don't like being in uncomfortable spaces. I like this quote from Tim Ferriss. He says, a person's success in life can usually be measured by the number of uncomf- uncomfortable conversations he or she is willing to have. Right? So if you want strong relationships, not surface relationships, if you want deep relationships with people you can rely on and do the journey of life with, you need to have honest, robust conversation um, where you not just kind of identify what's good, but also identify and pinpoint what's not good. Right? So, so for those of you who are married, if you're a bloke here and you're married or you want to get married one day, uh, it's, it's important that you don't just go through the motions of your marriage, but that you build into your rhythm moments and opportunities where you can have honest conversations with one another. Right? So, so if you're a bloke, you, you, you're trying to find a secure and safe space where it's got the commitment and, and affirmation, but you're also inviting uh, honesty. Um, you know, honey, do you feel treasured by me? Uh, do you feel honored and respect by me? What, what do you feel I'm doing well in the, the relationship right now? Uh, what do you think is unhelpful? And then you want to pause and give your wife an opportunity to respond, and she will, and you have to resist the urge to speak for at least five minutes. Don't defend yourself. Don't try and explain away. Listen. Bring it to the Lord. Learn, because she cares for you. She's committed to you. She wants the best for you. And so you invite those questions, and then you know what? She could ask you the same questions. And it's that opportunity just to go to another level of depth in a relationship, right? It's like when you start out in marriage, you you only know yourselves this much. But the more in marriage you have honesty, you can build depth and depth and depth. Same is true, though the questions, questions might be a little bit different, but the same principle is true in friendship. The same principle should be true in a church where we can be honest with one another. Hey, what are we doing at the moment that's going well? Let's also ask at other points, what are we doing that's not going so well? Right? That's how we work together in your gospel community. Why don't you talk about that this week? Hey, what do you think we're doing as a gospel community that's really good? What do you love most about it? What's not so good? What are we not doing well? Pause. Give people an opportunity to speak. Pray. Listen. Take it on board and then grow together. Right? Because we do this in the comfort of God. We do this as a church. You know, I love, um, I get the opportunity to work alongside um, some amazing men and women at the City on Hill staff here. Across our nine, almost ten churches, there's, I think, if Ian's here, almost 60 staff. Um, 60 staff. And that's a big responsibility. And there are times where that keeps me up at night. It's a massive responsibility. What I love is being with a team And what I need as a leader is having people close to me who can affirm what is good, encourage me, right? Support, tell me what's good, pray for me, but also who can tell me what's not good or when I'm acting like a jerk or when I'm distant or when I'm, right, unhelpful, right? You don't just want this in your life. (laughs) It's both and. Paul shares a word of tough love, which he was nervous about, right? He went to that coffee shop and like, oh, I'm not sure I should say this is going to be hard, right? But he does it. He lays it on the table. And by God's grace, the Spirit moves in the hearts of the Corinthians. And so he rejoices, verse 9, not because you were grieved, but he didn't like that bit. No one likes that bit. But because you were grieved into repenting, right? And, and this word in Greek speaks of a change of mind, a turning Right? They thought this way, they were seeing the world in this way, but through that conversation, that honest, spirit-inspired conversation, 
there was a, a repenting, a turning away and a ter- turning towards. And, he, and he, if we had more time, we could unpack uh, this idea here uh, where he talks about, actually, let's just bring it on up. He says, for you felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. Okay, really briefly here. Um, What is worldly grief? Uh, Worldly grief is a grief that sits in bitterness and anger. It sits in bitterness and anger. So on the outside, it looks the same. There's tears, there's frustration, but it sits in, worldly grief sits in bitterness and anger. It only cares about my feelings and my loss. It's about what she said and what she did. Godly grief is different. Godly grief does make room for lament, as we've seen, but it's always a lament that moves to God and towards action and reconciliation. Right? So, so you, someone can be angry and just say, like, that person's dead to me. That's, that's worldly grief. Godly grief owns the tears, but brings it to the Lord and to the other with a desire to seek prayer and forgiveness. Uh, I love this quote. Uh, by Jim Carrey. <laughs> he's a little zany, but occasionally has these gems. So he's, he's and you've probably seen it on TikTok or, yeah. Uh, he, he's talking to a room full of prisoners and of clearly it's, a, it's an environment where people have hurt others and they've been hurt and he's trying to kind of give them some guidance. And I, I think his wisdom is really helpful. He says, ultimately, suffering leads to salvation. In fact, it's the only way. We need to accept, not deny, but feel our suffering and feel our losses. And then we make one of two decisions. We go through the gate of resentment, which leads to vengeance, which leads to self-harm, which leads to harm of others, or we go through the gate of forgiveness, which leads to grace, just as Christ did on the cross. He suffered terribly and he was broken by it to the point of doubt and feeling of absolute abandonment. And then the decision was made. The decision was to look upon the people who were causing that suffering with compassion and forgiveness. That is what opened the gates of heaven for us all. That's the gospel. The life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus, where he dies for sinners. Right? Your sin in this world is not just against other people. You sinned against God. You defame God. In fact, that's the, the sin under all of our sins in our brokenness and our division and our church politics. It's a, an offense against God who made us to be one. And yet here is Jesus who, who comes, who enters into our sin, who takes upon him his sin. And what happens on the cross? He is broken. His his body is is pulled. That through faith in Christ and the sacrifice of atonement, we might be reconciled to God and reconciled to one another. Uh, The band's going to come on up as we um, prepare to share communion uh, together. Usually at City on a Hill, we we, we take uh, communion down the front in, in small tables, and I love that. It's a good kind of like family small meal moment, and I love that. I, I felt for today and for this text in particular, it would be wonderful if we could share communion together um, uh, where we are with the men and women around us. And so uh, you, you would have received some elements, uh, the, the bread and the, the, the bread. It's like really quite brief bread. Uh, and uh, you'll get some wine in that cup there. And uh, if you're not, let me say, this is historically and biblically a family meal. It's for men and women who who are in Christ. And so if you were today uh, a visitor, and we get lots of visitors who come to City on a Hill, and you're just exploring Christianity, uh, let me encourage you not to to participate in this meal, but just to kind of observe what is happening around you. If you're in Christ, there's an opportunity to take it. But I don't want you to take it just yet. You would have also received on your way in a piece of paper. What is that piece of paper for? I was asked 18 times as you came on in. Um, We've heard a lot, haven't we, today about the importance of relationships and unity and that we're to be moved in God's comfort to pursue reconciliation. I'm sure that as I was preaching and God's word was going out and his spirit is moving, I'm sure that even now that 
there is a relationship in your life that you know is strained. Could be a family member, a friend, a work colleague, someone in the church. But there's a relationship in your life that is strained. Maybe it feels broken. Maybe it feels lost. What, I, what I'd love us all to do before we share communion together is to, to, to just jot that name down, just where you are, the name of that relationship, and then to hold on that paper, uh, both to pray this week for that relationship, but like Paul, to take action, to seek God's wisdom on how might I not draw away, but draw to could be that opportunity for coffee where you have that honest chat. It could be a letter of forgiveness. So I'll give you a moment to, to reflect on that relationship and that particular person to write down and hold on to that. And then in a couple of minutes, I'll come up and lead us in communion together. Father, we thank you for uh, your word and your great love for us. I want to pray right now for the men and women here and those who are joining us online and the relationships in our lives. Thank you for the great joy that friends and family and church give us. But Lord, we also confess that sometimes those relationships can be hard and they can be distance and we feel alone and we're unsure what to do. And so for all the names that we wrote down just now, Lord, we want to commit them and us to you and ask for your grace and your strength and your comfort. Give us wisdom to know what we can do, to not draw away, but to draw near. Would you open hearts and make a way in hearts for us all? We pray this in Jesus' name and all of God's people said, amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au.